Mark chapter number six is where we're going to be at today. And we're continuing our series that we've been in that I've entitled Refocus. And in this series, we are going through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're examining Jesus' actions and his interactions, and we're getting a clearer view of who Jesus is, kind of stripping away all of the traditions and all of the uh, preconceptions and all these things, and seeing Jesus for who he is according to his word. And last week, what we were looking at was the account of the woman with the issue of blood. She had an issue that no one could cure, that uh, many had tried. She had uh, used up all of her money, everything that she had had in trying to seek after a cure, and no one was able to help her. In fact, it says that she only got worse. But whenever she heard about Jesus, she believed that Jesus could heal her of this issue. She reached out in faith to get the help she needed, and Jesus healed her immediately. And in the end, he transformed her life completely. And the message for us is that like this woman, we have an issue of blood. We are born sinners. We inherit the sin of Adam, and we are all sinners, condemned and uh, headed to uh, headed to hell. And I know that's something we don't like to think about, something we don't like to look at. But that is the issue that we have. And man has tried all different ways to try to remedy that. There are multitudes of religions out there. There's all kinds of uh, different schools of thought on it and things that people have tried to do to make themselves feel as if they're okay, to try to cover up or try to comfort themselves of the sins that they have. But nothing is suitable. Nothing is going to heal that need. Nothing is going to get rid of that issue except for Jesus Christ. And so uh, Jesus is the only answer. And whenever we put our faith and trust in him alone for salvation, he heals us, he accepts us, and he transforms us. And it doesn't stop there, that even after we are saved, we still have issues. And if we'll just take them to Jesus first instead of as a last resort, he will provide the help that we need. And so today we're going to follow Jesus and his disciples uh, after this season of uh, ministry, of healing, of teaching and everything. And they are going out into the wilderness where they are hoping to get some rest. And uh, I can imagine that the disciples constantly following Jesus, walking everywhere they're going, crowds of people thronging them, never having a moment's peace. They were ready to get away. They were ready for a holiday. And so they're going out to the wilderness for rest. And the crowd isn't willing to leave them alone. As a matter of fact, it says that they go across the sea on a boat and the crowd goes by land around the sea and meets them on the other side. Now, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? It was faster for them, I guess, walking around than it was for Jesus and the disciples. On their, maybe, they, maybe they took it slow across there. They were just a leisurely journey and these people caught up with them. I'm not sure. But anyway... Uh, Whenever they uh, follow him around, the disciples are there and the, the crowd gathers around and much to their dismay, Jesus begins to teach and to preach, says that he has compassion on them and he's healing their sick. And the disciples are thinking, oh man, I thought we were going to get a break, but they don't get a break. And as Jesus' teaching continues on till the evening, uh, the disciples, not, being, not wanting to be the, the heartless or uncaring type, come up with an idea and say, hey, Jesus, it's getting late. The people have been here for a good while. They've made a long journey. They're probably tired. They're probably hungry. Why don't you send them away so that they can go into the villages around us and get some food? Doesn't that sound so loving and benevolent on their behalf? 
They're saying, get rid of these people so we can rest. That's what they're saying. And so anyway, Jesus has a different plan, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. So Mark chapter number 6, and we're going to begin down in, let's see, where are we at? Mark chapter 6 and verse number 32. It says, And they departed into a desert place by ship privately, and the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of the cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep, having no shepherd, uh, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, the disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all set down by companies upon the green grass. And they set down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did eat and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you so much, Lord, for this time together in your house. Lord, thank you for the fellowship uh, amongst one another, Lord, for uh, just the, the ability that we can come in out of this world for just a little while and be with our family here. And we just pray, Lord, for your blessings on this service. I just pray that you guide and direct me as I teach and preach. I pray that everything that is said and done would be uh, would be pleasing to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with each person here, that they would glean from the service exactly that which is needed. We do pray for for Peter's request there earlier. Lord, please be with his daughter as she's applying to university. Just I pray that you would have your will and your way about that and and help him as a, as a father. I know he's He's bound to be proud of his daughter and concerned about her. And I just pray that you would please be with that situation. And Lord, I just pray that today, draw your people near to you. I pray if there's one here that doesn't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would put their faith and trust in you, that they would have their sins forgiven and their place in heaven made sure. We thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen. So as we look at this passage it records a very important event in Jesus' earthly ministry. And the reason I say that it was an important event is this is the only miracle that Jesus performed outside of his resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. We find the Gospels have uh, somewhere around 35 to 40 miracles that are recorded, depending on who you ask and who's counting. But this is the only one except for the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. And it seems like it was significant to the disciples. It stuck in their minds for a long time, and so they, they recorded it. Not only that, it was significant to God because he inspired them to record it in his word. And I believe the importance lies in the lesson 
that Jesus is teaching his disciples. Now, I said that the disciples were expecting to rest, but Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus was never caught by surprise. Whenever he got to the other side and there were people there waiting for him or people arrived shortly thereafter, he wasn't taken by surprise and saying, oh man, my plans are ruined. But instead, the whole time, the whole journey, he knew what he was getting ready to do and that the disciples had some lessons that they needed to learn. And this was one of those times that he was going to teach them something great. If they were going to go on and become apostles, if they were going to be the foundation of the church of God, if they were going to go out and turn the world upside down with the gospel, they needed to learn this lesson. And I believe for us, likewise, we need to learn this lesson. For us as born-again Christians, if we are children of God here today, hopefully I don't have to convince you that God has a greater purpose for us than just living a life, earning, uh, earning a wage, trying to accumulate fun stuff, and dying. He has more for us than that. As children of God, we know that we are eternal beings. As children of God, we know that heaven lay ahead. And as children of God, we know that God's not willing that any should perish, but he desires that all should come to repentance. He has given us a commission. He has told us to go out and be witnesses unto the ends of this earth, to all of this world of the gospel, of the things that he has done for us. And so with this, we know that he has given us salvation. He has prepared a place. He has promised blessings and benefits for doing his will, both now in this world here and in eternity beyond. And so if he's left us here to be witnesses, in order for us to tell a lost and dying world about him, about what a wonderful Savior that we have that has bled and died so that we can have eternal life. He paid a payment that we could not pay. He paid a debt that we couldn't pay. If we are to proclaim this to the lost and dying world, we need to learn this lesson. And so the disciples had this laying before them. We have this laying before us. And so today I want to look at this lesson that Jesus was teaching with the loaves and the fishes. And so the first thing that I want to bring out through this, just want to kind of take this section by section, step by step. And the first thing that we see in this that stands out to me is the hungry multitude. Anytime that we look at this story, it's always called the feeding of the 5,000, right? The thing that we always focus on, the things that we always look at about this story is the number of people that was involved. And you can imagine Jesus and his small number of disciples there would have been very small in comparison to this crowd. As we look at this, it says that uh, in John and in Mark that there was about 5,000. Uh, Matthew adds to it a little bit, and he says there was 5,000, not counting the women and the children. That adds to it a little bit, doesn't it? And so if we were to uh, just take a conservative estimate, if there was 12,000, That'd be a thousand per disciple, right? It could easily have been much more than that. If there was one woman and one child for every man, that would have been 15,000. There was a lot of people there. And I don't think we can fathom how many people were in that place, how big of a crowd there was. I don't know about you. I haven't been in a place with 15,000 people all in one place where I could observe it. Maybe if you went to a major sporting event or a concert or something like that, maybe you've seen that in a stadium. But imagine a small group having to see to the needs of all of those people. Uh, you take, for instance, what we said about a stadium, right? <clears throat> if you have a stadium, how many employees are in the, in the stadium for that event? There's a lot. 
there's a lot of people in a stadium for that event. There's a, uh, uh, this is a, a, a bit of a rabbit trail for me here, but I've, I've been looking in the news here lately. It's been popping up about this, uh, this latest cruise liner that they have coming out. Have anyone seen that? There's the, the world's largest boat that is just being launched. They're getting ready uh, to, to set sail on this cruise liner uh, next year. And on that cruise liner, they can have somewhere around 8,000 people on a one boat out in the middle of the ocean. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Out of those 8,000 people, it takes about 2,000 crew members to tend to 8,000 people in a boat of that size. So to bring this back into perspective, there's 15,000 people, 12,000 people, something like that, and Jesus and the 12 apostles. Are you starting to get an idea of how enormous this crowd was, how big of a task this was that was before them? And so the disciples knew that this crowd had not eaten for some time. They knew that the night was coming upon them. They knew that there was no food, there was no shelter. The people were tired. And so they were determined to send them away. Essentially, they were saying, this is not our problem. We didn't ask them to come. We were looking forward to a nice, relaxing camping trip. We didn't ask them to come. We're not the ones that overlooked packing a lunch. Surely they should have prepared for their journey, right? And so it's not my problem. Send them away. But Jesus said to them, you feed them. Now, as I've read this many different times, I've, I've always been caught, and this is another side note, I've always been caught by this idea of the apostles coming to Jesus and trying to tell Jesus what he should do. Y'all catch that? Jesus is the one preaching, teaching. He's the one doing miracles. He's the one raising the dead. He's doing all these different things. And the disciples come up to Jesus and say, I'm not sure you're aware of this, but these people have traveled a long ways. They're tired. They haven't eaten anything. You may want to consider sending them away, Jesus. And I don't know if they were expecting Jesus to just say, oh, I never thought of that. I'm glad you brought that to my attention. I never once even contemplated that I was so wrapped up in teaching and preaching and healing that I didn't consider their physical needs. That sounds stupid, doesn't it? But this is what the apostles were doing. They're coming to Jesus saying, we've made some observations about things. We have some information it seems like you have overlooked. You ever take that approach with Jesus? Come telling Jesus about all the things he already knows about as if it's something new, some new information you're presenting to him. But anyway, Jesus replies and says, okay, if you know so much about what's going on, if you think you're so capable, if you know what you're doing better than I do, then you feed them. Right? See, this is part of the lesson they're learning because the disciples say, hey, I've got this under control, Jesus. I know what to do. I know how this needs to be handled. And he says, okay, if you know so much, you feed them. And so what an impossible task Jesus has given them. And they'd respond and say, Jesus, have you seen the size of this crowd? Do you understand what's going on here? And they begin questioning. They begin saying, why would he ask something so impossible of us? But see, this was just a drop in the bucket of what God had in store for them. Imagine they're facing a crowd of 15,000 people, but by the time it's over with, Jesus is going to tell them, go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I'm not sure if you've done the math, but that's significantly greater than 15,000 people. And so he says, I want you to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. 
And if they are to fulfill that command of God, they're going to have to learn this lesson that he is presenting to them here. The Great Commission wasn't just for the Twelve, though, but it was for the church. Every believer, uh, because God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants all of us to be involved in seeing the gospel go out into this world. And this world's population is growing by the moment. I was talking with uh, with my father-in-law there last night about how the world's population is constantly increasing and growing. I can remember whenever it was a big deal, whenever the world population crossed 7 billion people. Okay? There was a big deal about the world's population has reached 7 billion. Now we're over 8 billion. And so that's just within the past 20, 25 years that the world's population has grown by a billion and there's no way that we can fathom how many a billion is. You start counting now until you die, you're still not going to reach a billion, no matter how quickly you count. That's a big number. And so as we look at this world and how the population continues to increase, we know that every friend, every relative, every neighbor, every coworker, everyone we come in contact is someone who God loves and someone for whom Christ died. The people across the road, across the country, across the ocean— are people who God loves, people who he cares about, people that he wants to see receive the gospel. That is a pretty tall order. And he has told us, go feed them. Go take the gospel to them. And so the second thing that we find in this, after they have received this command to feed this multitude, we find the hopeless mathematicians. They start doing the numbers, they start crunching the numbers, they start looking at all of their resources, what is available, and Philip is saying, okay, we have if we have 200 penny worth of bread, that it's not sufficient that every man should even have a taste. They said if we would bankrupt ourselves, it wouldn't be enough to even provide a snack, God. How are we supposed to feed them? And so they're doing the numbers, they're trying to figure out a plan, they've got a scheme, and they're trying to figure out the closest towns and where they could buy it and who would have enough because these towns and villages would not have just enough extra bread on hand to feed 15,000 people. And so they're working out all of this and saying, how are we going to do this? How would we break it down? Where would we find the food? How would we go about distributing it? And they're trying to come up with programs and figures and all of this of how to make this happen. And something interesting to me is they don't come to Jesus and say, we can't do it, okay, how are you going to do it? Instead of saying, Jesus, you have proved time and time again that you know what you're doing, you're the miracle worker, you're the one that overcomes impossible odds, they are still looking at themselves, and they are saying, how are we going to make this happen? And so whenever they realized that the crowd was too big, the resources was too small, could you imagine how they would feel? How overwhelmed, how discouraged they would feel? Because all along, they are trying to impress Jesus. They're trying to show him what they can do. How many times has Peter stood up and, and put on a brave face and acted like he was in charge and he was confident? Time after time, right? He wants to prove himself to Jesus. And at this point in time, they say, Jesus has asked something of us. There is no way we could ever do. I think inadequate would be a good word. You ever feel inadequate? I figure they felt quite inadequate at this time. 
In John chapter number six, whenever Andrew comes with the news of the loaves and the fishes to Jesus, he says, we have a lad here that has five loaves and two fishes. And then what does he say? What is that amongst so many? He comes to Jesus almost apologetic about it. He's like, I feel stupid even telling you this. But there's a lad here with five loaves and two fishes. But what is that amongst so many? Have you ever had that feeling? A feeling of inadequacy? What am I amongst so many? What can I do with this need being so great? What can I do to satisfy this crowd? What is it? Because I know my limitations. I know my faults. I know how much I lack in resources. I can't do this. And do you realize that's where God wants us to be at? He wants us to realize that we are insufficient in and of ourselves because our sufficiency isn't of ourselves. Our sufficiency is in him. Even for a person to get saved, they have to realize how large the multitude of their sins is, that they are unable to overcome that by their own merits, their own works, their own goodness, by anything that they do. They have to realize that the need is too great and my resources are too few. And so they realize how small their resources are. This scenario is played out throughout Scripture quite often. Moses comes to God whenever he is uh, there at the burning bush, and he says, God, you've got the wrong guy. I have such limited resources, I can't even speak well. How am I supposed to lead your army of several thousand, not several thousand, several million people? How am I supposed to do that whenever I can't even speak well, God? You've got the wrong guy. We find going on to Abraham and Sarah, God comes and says, I'm going to give you a child. That child is going to become a great nation. And out of that great nation, I'm going to bring a deliverer, uh, a man that's going to be a blessing to all men. I'm going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And Abraham and Sarah look at each other. They're 80, 90 years old. And they say, we're too old. We don't have the resources anymore. There's no way that we're able to have this child, let alone this multitude as the sand on the seashore that you talk about. God, find someone else. As a matter of fact, Sarah even laughs at God and then denies that she laughed. We go on, we see Gideon. Remember him in the book of Judges? The angel appears to him. He is hiding. He is threshing the wheat in basically a hole, hiding away from the enemy, and the angel of God comes to him and calls him a valiant man. And Gideon says, valiant man, do you see what I'm doing? I'm a coward. You want me to go and deliver your people? You want me to lead an army? I'm afraid to even thresh my wheat in the open. God, you got the wrong guy. Elijah was convinced that he was the only one and they sought his life to take it away. He especially felt like he was the only one whenever he was the only one representing God whenever the priest of Baal was at 400. Y'all remember that story? And he says, God, I'm the only one. Just take me out of here. The task is too big. They're not going to listen to me. Let's just forget this, right? And so whenever we desire to serve God, when we desire to do his will, whenever we want to be a witness, it is easy to become one of these hopeless mathematicians. It's easy for us to start taking inventory. It's easy for us to see our flaws, our faults, our failures, our shortcomings, and say, God, there is no way that you can use me. 
God, there's no way that I can do this. There's no way that I can amount to anything in your work. And as Christians here in Ireland, this is so, so apparent. It's so much before us because we look around at this place that we live in and most people are either ignorant of the things of God or they are completely unconcerned about the things of God. And we look around and we feel like we are very few. What are we amongst so many, right? You try to talk to people, they don't care. You talk to people and they uh, are content with their beliefs, with the things that they have, with their understanding of who God is. And we look at ourselves and we say, I can't overcome this. I can't be that mouthpiece. I can't be that witness. I can't make any kind of a difference here because look at how small, how insignificant that I am. You ever been there? As I look at the, the fields white unto harvest here, as one man, I say, God, how could I ever do anything? How could I make a difference? Just in trying to pastor a handful of people here. God, you got the wrong guy. Pick somebody else. I don't know what I'm doing here. And God says, I put you here. I've got a purpose. I've got a plan. I've got something for you to do. And so in this, we see, when we come to this place, if we are so few, what are we amongst so many? It sounds hopeless. It sounds daunting. It's kind of discouraging, isn't it? But that's not the end of the story. So the disciples are in this dark, this deep place of insufficiency. What are we amongst so many? And Jesus says, go out and see what you can find. And that's when Andrew comes back with this little boy and his lunch. And I've tried to put myself in this position. I've tried to put myself in the place of the disciples as Andrew comes running up with a little boy and his lunch. How would you respond to that? You see 15,000 people here and not even a man's lunch, a boy's lunch. And I figure one of them, probably Peter, said, Andrew, what's wrong with you? Five loaves and two fish? Why would you even bring that here? That's a waste of time. Why would you bring that? But this little boy, as they're going around and saying, hey, does anyone have any food? Jesus is looking for some sort of food. There's people here that are hungry. Jesus is looking for some sort of food. And this little boy, childlike faith, he comes out and he says, I brought my lunch. And I can imagine him presenting it and saying, it's not much. Five barley loaves and two fishes, it's not much. But if Jesus can use it, he can have it. It's not much, but if Jesus can use it, he can have it. So this little boy's lunch, I'm just keeping up with my, my alliteration here. I, I saw the Happy Meal. How familiar with the Happy Meal? A meal meant to feed a kid, got a surprise inside. And so this is what we find here. And so as something so small and significant, even Andrew was apologetic when he brought it to Jesus. But this is where the lesson is. 
When the disciples are wringing their hands, when they're trying to figure out something, they're trying to come up with a solution. The little boy with lunch comes up and says, if Jesus can use this, he can have it. And five barley loaves, that's not even good bread. That's the cheap stuff. Two smelly fish, it wasn't even a good cut of steak. And he says, but if Jesus can have, if he can use it, he can have it. And I figure the disciples probably laughed. They told Jesus about it, probably expecting Jesus to finally throw up the white flag of surrender and say, okay, boys, you were right. This is hopeless. We may as well just go ahead and send them out. But to their surprise, Jesus says, make them to set down by companies. Take them out and divide them into groups. Have them to set down so that you're able to serve them. And they're looking in disbelief at these five loaves and two fishes and saying, what in the world is he going to do? But see, Jesus had everything he needed whenever this boy surrendered the little that he had. And I wonder how often we are the ones that are rationalizing. We are doing the math. We're coming up with plans. We're coming up with schemes. We're coming up with systems of how to get God's work done, of how to make God's will happen by our own means. And all he wants us to do is to present unto him our loaves and our fishes. He wants us to present unto him the little that we have and trust him to make it sufficient. And so we say, here I am, Lord. I'm not much, but if you can use me, you can have me. That's all he's looking for. And look at what God did with that little happy meal. There's a principle here in place, heavenly multiplication. Okay? This boy's small lunch supplied the 12 men, the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples put it into their 12 baskets. And from those 12 baskets, they distributed it to 12, 15, 20,000, whoever. And it was stretched beyond anything that they could have ever imagined. And Jesus was using simple things to accomplish something big. He was using a boy's lunch. He was using a fisherman, a tax collector. He was using baskets. He was using fish. He was using loaves. He was using all of these extremely simple things to accomplish something very big. And all of it was insignificant until Jesus got involved. Okay? That's what made the difference when Jesus got involved in it. I still, I'm trying to figure out in my mind, okay? Does anyone else try to imagine these things as you're reading them? Do you ever try to picture them or is it just me? Am I weird? Okay. But they have the the five loaves, the two fishes, the 12 baskets. It says that Jesus broke the loaves and distributed to them. So imagine these five. We're not talking about Pat the Baker loaves. We're talking about like a scone, basically. Okay. And he broke these five loaves. And maybe everyone got a little bit more than a half of one because there's 12 and five, you know division. And so everyone gets a little piece of bread, but then there's two fish. Imagine these poor little fish being split up 12 ways. I mean, you just get like a pinch. We're not talking about like a sea bass. This has been like a small fish. And they break it apart and they put it in the baskets. And I wonder if it multiplied as he was breaking it apart to where it actually looked like substance in the basket. Or if the disciples were looking at it and like, that's not even a mouthful. Right? I don't know how the mechanics of it worked. I don't know if uh, God made it to just continue multiplying like rabbits in the basket or something. 
Or if every time someone took something out, it just magically appeared again. Remember the, the story of the, the widow with her barrel of oil that just kept dipping and it just kept coming? Maybe that's the way that it worked. And every time someone reached in and they got a piece of fish, they got a piece of bread, more appeared behind it. But anyway, the disciples went throughout this multitude. wonder how long it would have taken. Take some time, wouldn't it? Everyone got as much as they wanted. And the disciples finally took the, the rest of it that they had in their basket, and they sat down and they began to eat with Jesus. And they gave the people some time. And then as they're sitting there, maybe the disciples are talking about how this worked and how they were able to feed all of these people. And did you see what happened? And they're excited about it. And Jesus is just sitting over there, probably a little bit of a smile on his face. And he looks at the guys and says, okay, boys, now get the leftovers. What would their response have been whenever Jesus says to get the leftovers? They started with five loaves and two fishes, and Jesus says get the leftovers. Do you think by now they just finally realized, okay, we may not understand it, but let's just follow him by faith. Let's just obey. Or do you think that they laughed and said, how could there be leftovers, Jesus? We started with such a little amount. How could there be more that's left? We don't know, but whatever happened, they got their baskets, they went and started collecting leftovers, and it says that they ended up with 12 baskets full. They ended up with more than what they started with. And we don't know the entire reason why God had the leftovers. I believe part of it is just simply to show us that Jesus is more than enough. That whenever he provides, he makes sure that we have all that we need. He is sufficient. But I think there may have been more to this, and if you'll just give me a little bit of room here. I wonder where the baskets came from. You ever wonder what 12 disciples in the wilderness was doing with 12 baskets? Was that their hobby, their basket weavers? I don't know. But they had 12 baskets. I wonder if maybe they were using this to carry their supplies. They were living as nomads. Maybe these baskets were like an early version of a suitcase. And so they had their suitcase here. They put the bread and the fishes in it. They distributed it. They collected it. And they had 12 baskets full, 12 suitcases full of leftovers for them to eat on for a couple days. And as they're eating from their basket, as they're eating these leftovers, they are remembering over and over what God had just done, what Jesus had just done in fulfilling that need and using them and some very simple items to feed that great multitude. And they're just thinking on that for a couple of days as they're eating these leftovers. And then I wonder if they kept those baskets. And as they traveled, after Jesus resurrected and after he went on to heaven and they went in their different directions, I wonder if they still had those baskets. I wonder if they continued taking those baskets with them. And everywhere they went, they had that basket as a reminder. Now, this isn't Bible. This is just me, okay? But could you imagine what a powerful reminder that would be to them every time that they raised their eyes and they looked over the multitudes of people who were hungry for the gospel, and they thought to themselves, what am I amongst so many? They looked at that basket and said, God can multiply the little that I give him, and he can supply abundantly all that they need if I will just give myself my little lunch, my happy meal to him. He can make it work. And so our lesson for us today is that there is a great work to be done. There is a multitude out there. There is something huge to accomplish. 
that we don't have a chance to even begin to accomplish on our own. We don't have the resources. We don't have the abilities. We are not capable in and of ourselves. But if we will give Jesus the little bit that he had, that we have, he can take our little and he can do very much with it. We feel insufficient. We feel as if the work is too great. But if we just give Jesus our little and trust him to do the work, trust him to multiply it, trust him to make it count, he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or believe, all that we think can happen. He can do that. And so that's my challenge to each of you here today. Realize that if all you have is just a happy meal, if you all you have is just a little, it can become a lot if you simply surrender it to God. God can do much with your little. But as long as you continue to set trying to figure it all out yourself, as long as you continue trying to do all the math and trying to work it all out and make it make sense, never happen. It's whenever you put it in the hands of God that he can multiply it. And so for us as Christians today, there's no better place that you can be than in, the, in God's hand. No better place that you can be than to surrender your all to him and allow him to do what he will. But if you're here today and you are not a believer, if you're here today and there's never been a time that you have accepted Jesus Christ and his payment for your sin on the cross to save your, save your soul and forgive you and to settle your place in heaven, your sin debt is too great. You can never pay it. You don't possess what you need to pay for your sins. Religion can't do it. Your good works aren't going to make up for it. But what Jesus wants you to do is to simply put your faith, just your little faith, even as a grain of mustard seed, in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. And he will take that and he will forgive your sins. He will save your soul and you will be his. And he can do great things in your life and through you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we thank you so much for this passage that we have here today. We thank you, Lord, that this little boy was willing to give up his lunch and allow you to use it for your glory. Uh, no doubt he was able to eat much better with surrendering his lunch to you than if he would have kept it to himself. And we just pray, Lord, asking you, Lord, that you be with each of us here today, that we wouldn't get hung up on the size of the task. We wouldn't get hung up on how small and how insignificant we are, but we would place ourselves in your hands and allow you to do whatsoever you wish. And Lord, if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that even now that they would call out to you in prayer, confess their sins, and ask you to forgive their sins and to save their soul before we leave this place today. And Lord, we thank you for all you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen.